HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Leiti Sue, host of Word of Mouth. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, and welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Charles Fenn of The Slanted Door in San Francisco. And it's really exciting to have you here because it was about 20 years ago at, what, 584 Valencia Street in the Mission in San Francisco that uh, you started this business, never having been, you know... uh, attending culinary school, working professionally as a chef. A home cook opens up a Vietnamese restaurant, and obviously the rest is history. Um, thank you, Michael, for having me. I, I think I must be completely drugged out all those years. <laughs> I don't know what, what I was thinking. Well, I mean, you you are a very smart and methodical person. I have a couple phrases which I'm going to have you translate for us uh, a little bit later in Vietnamese. But, you know... Y- you grew up in Vietnam, got out of there uh, before the Viet Cong, you know, overthrew, um, came to San Francisco, gained a lot of interesting skills from pottery to, you know, being an architectural student. But there was this driving force of food that kept on, you know, pushing you towards opening a restaurant. But let's start from the way, way beginning. Vietnam. What were living conditions like? What was cooking, eating? Um, I grew up in a little town called Dalat. It's about eight-hour drive, uh, very slow driving from uh, Ho Chi Minh City. So it's sort of like, imagine like the Tahoe or the the mountain area, a little cooler. So they would grow things like strawberry and butter lettuce. So it's kind of kind of scenic. And... Because of that, the French, uh, a lot more French, build a villa, 
uh, doing the war, the military score there. So I think it's a lot, sort of like the no truth, the truth zone that um, all the R&R, so the war didn't, you know, there, there were a little bit of, you know, bombing stuff, but, but all in all, it's pretty, pretty calm. And I was just exposed to a lot more French culture. My, my mom worked for a French hospital. Um, she speaks a little French. We grew up eating French food, go to a French restaurant. Um, and she was a, really a businesswoman, and I was raised with, you know, um, these ladies that worked for my mom and followed them to the market uh, for some reason. I like to eat, and just even at a young age, uh, I think I was probably like three, four years old, and my dad was having breakfast with me with roast port and baguette. Uh, two people uh, got into a fight downstairs, broke out, and he ran downstairs. It was a little mezzanine that's not even tall enough for you to stand up. There's a little squat and a little stool, and me me and him having breakfast, and um, I think with little Maggie sauce and... Uh, roast port and baguette, fresh baguette and uh, he went down there and break out the fight, came back all the skin, all the fat were gone the cat is eating the meat and the only thing left for him was a baguette and soy sauce <laughs> that's just how it started <laughs> see, you know, and we take banh mi's for granted now but, you know, you had to fight or your father had to fight a cat for his yeah, yeah but your so, father was a little bit of an entrepreneur too. I mean, he he sold ice cream cones imported from Hong Kong and Laos. And yeah, he he was really a merchant. And at the end of the day, you know, he passed away, and I learned everything through him being a merchant. And I remember in Chinatown, he, and and if you know Chinatown, over the border of North Beach, and the Italian one side, and the Chinese ones one side, and in between you have pornography, you know, and and Broadway, and and. And there was a porn a magazine store, and, and and back in those days, and you really don't cross the street, and 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 then you got all the strip clubs, and and he say, yeah, I want that porn store, it's gonna go out. And he, he just see these things, you know. And lo and behold, he didn't get it. Unfortunately, he wanted to do a grocery store, and and it didn't take long for that porn store to go out. Like he he see patterns, he see things, um, and and you know. In fact, that year, uh, this little restaurant, Yet Li, was opening across and crossed into uh, the Italian section of town. And, um, and I, I learned that from him, just kind of, and, and my restaurant career started when I was, you know, he got a job um, as a janitor. And just kind of, I try to imagine what I was like in 42 with six kids, not speaking language, don't have any skill, being in the middle of a country, couldn't even speak the language. He was able to find a job. He was a, got a job at an English pub called The Coachman um, uh, as a janitor. And I got a job in 1978, uh, busing table. So I was 15 years old, I think 16 years old. Yeah, 16. I was 16, busing table. And I continued to work throughout high school, went to Berkeley. And then I started working at a nightclub in San Francisco and... And back then, they had mesquite oil, oyster on half shell. I mean, like $4, you get six dozen. I mean, uh, half a dozen. And um, I mean, a lot of the similarity, like trout almondine as, as an entree, these internet, uh, continental cuisine. And, and I was exposed to all that. And in high school, I was drinking Calistoga water. I mean, <laughs> I was, it was a little, people wouldn't think much now, but for, for a Vietnamese kids to 
15 years old buying bubble waters this is a really weird concept and don't forget croissants and you know uh, oh yeah coffees and yeah uh i was uh, yeah i'd go uh, just dessert just open ride my bike from chinatown read the new york time and have espresso and croissant before starbuck were born i mean it was just kind of i was just all exposed to all that stuff what did you do for your senior prom you put together some large french meal I took a group of friends up to Knob Hill to some restaurant and convinced them to, you know, uh, to have this meal with me. And we have to pre-order the souffle. And, and you know, I was just really decked it all out. Like, like they had no idea why they're paying all this money and eating this spongy thing. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, I was, you know, duck a la orange and all that stuff. I was just really, I, I, I just did not know that I actually really liked food and didn't know that I was really wanted a career with it. I just like to cook. Just uh, I, I was I saw Japapan not long ago. I say because of you, sir, that I have a career. You know, in high school I, I would watch every episode, and every time I cut an onion, I think of Japapan and 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 cutting an onion. And it's simple. I mean, like you would not find any chef today who will show you how cut a basic onion. These simple skill and and he was amazing. And I remember watching, you know, Julia Child on those TV, um, you know, and um, and just learn about food and and eating at Jeremiah Tower, the little cafe, Star Cafe, and and every penny I have, I would just spend my money on food. Spend my money on food, and he had a roast chicken for eight bucks back in the cafe, and and I was usually alone. Because I, you know, I couldn't convince any of my high school friends to do that kind of thing. They, and by then, I was just really into the adult. And you know, I was 15 years old, and I would try to date a 28-year-old <laughs> tattoo girl, and that was my world. Yeah. Well, I mean, so it seems like you were always the food guy. But when did you become the Vietnamese food guy? Because you're such an authority now. But you, you had this affinity towards French, towards you know experimental California cuisine at the time. Uh, well, um, Chinatown just happened. There weren't a lot of Vietnamese at all, and all the Vietnamese had moved down to San Jose or Los Angeles. So, and and we were eating some in Chinatown. But I was in the early year. I was just really in awe by all the California cuisine and Mediterranean cuisine. That was just new and exciting. And I remember making a whole Thanksgiving dinner. On a Wedgwood stove, um, took me four or five days recover to cover in a gourmet magazine. I was, I was a guy that tried to embrace, um, bring American culture into my family. I would buy everybody present at Christmas, and I had to buy myself one, so it looked like everybody got a present because nobody knew what the hell that is. <laughs> we don't have Christmas in Vietnam, and at least in our family, we're Buddhist, and 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 I would do these Thanksgiving dinner, and and my mom would just cook some Chinese food just to have a backup plan because it's like they see all this mashed potato and gravy and all this thing they just like they don't trust it so mom would have a pot of stew some rice on the side of course all chinese people got to have rice at all time you know at any given moment of the day and so um so but we start i think around high school uh, i left in 82 went to berkeley she started wanting us to come home once i was the first guy to leave school and she said, once, once a month I have to be home, even though it's just across the bay and I didn't want to be home. I live in a, a dormitory. I live in a Barrington Hall and it's a co-op, this kind of giant drug-infested house. Um, and, um, and I come home and she would make these food 
started making Vietnamese food, we, we, by then we started to miss it. It was so long. You think of 1975 to 1985, which is, you know, that's a good chunk of time that you don't see this food. And then she started missing it, and she started making it at home. Um, like she'd make bun sale, like this crispy crepe. And um, it was a little stall behind our shop in Vietnam. It was all that food memory. And and it was those years I was like, well, why can't you have this food in this modern design? And 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 I was into design. And, yeah, and I, I mean, was, you were an architectural student. Yeah, and, and and also at the time, a lot of people were stereotyped. Asian people can't design. Asian people only do math. You know, and I was young, and I was kind of you know really uh, bothered by that. And so I, um, I I was just you know destined to do design and art. I want to I want to be an artist. I want to be a potter, and I th- did pottery for four or five years and. Dad was just having a meltdown, saying, "Jesus, you know, it's the first, you know, fond in the whole world that you go to college and you want to do pottery, and that don't make any sense." Um, so that idea was kind of born like ten years before I opened, and and, and I think I was just I was just at Judy Rogers' um, chef's uh, memorial, and she passed away, really sad, and had cancer, and. And all of a sudden, I was talking to one of her old chef, and and I remember eating a zuni, and I would bitch about her salt and pepper shaker, where they didn't match, like the left, the white one, and the black one didn't match, and her glassware was kind of sucks, and and I would just pay attention all these detail with design, but but I remember seeing her menu with six item on the menu, and that just gave me the green light to do my restaurant I said look we can do like this you don't have to learn how to cook you just cook 16 you just fake it six item and you got yourself a restaurant you know because prior to that you know even back then you go to the Blue Fox and all these fancy restaurants these menus are like you know bigger than it's like a you know giant signpost you know and and it wasn't eight and a half by eleven and um, back then there's no menu smaller than you know 20 by 30. <laughs> yeah. I mean, your original concept for Slanted Door was rice crepes, and only rice crepes, really. It was it was almost single subject. Uh, I was going to do that in the Tenderloin, and this French guy won't lease it to me. He said, there's too many Vietnamese here. I'm building a uh, European hostel, and and I I literally changed my size. I'll do um, French uh, breakfast um, w- with you, like Berry Ocean Diner in Berkeley. And the and next day, I went home and did a test run with all my friends, and he didn't believe me. And then, um, and then I went out to uh, Valencia Street when I found the space, and I thought, well, there's this you know taco to go, El Toro, and I think we're going to do a Vietnamese you know kind of quick service, but. But inside of me, I was always kind of fancy guy with fancy dining. That's my background, you know. So, so we created the lunch menu with noodles and crepe and soup. But at dinner, like it just, I start doing fancy, you know, sit down dinner. With, I, I can't help myself like getting nice wine glasses, getting you know wine service and all that stuff. And 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 back then, I wasn't very clear. And I just I'd never done a restaurant before, so I just do whatever it feels like doing. So during the day, it could be just like a jack-in-the-box, and at night, it could be like a fancy dining place. You know? um, it was just me and my brother, so it didn't really matter. you know. And we would just cook, and one of us, and he'd say, well, i got to do some dishes. It's running out of dishes. I'd go back there and do another load and come back. And um, 
and, and you know, sometimes I have to run out and serve the food because it's so backed up. And then finally, we hire one waiter, and after two waiters, we finally hire a dishwasher. And I mean, we were just, you know, running a seat to our pans. And yeah. Well, I mean, you talk about this small storefront that was putting out, you know, gorgeous, soulful Vietnamese food, and now you have an over 200-seat, like, megalith on Embarcadero in the Ferry Building. How did you retain that soul? I mean, your food and, and atmosphere has the same vibrancy I, I assume Valencia has from all I've heard and seen. Uh, well, everybody missed the old one, and I don't miss it because it, like people were burning each other with sheet pans and they were on top of each other. Um, I, I think we really, because we didn't really have any restaurant experience, we were just building everything, a, a solid team. And the team was just kind of underrated, no one, you know. And, and, and writing this book, it really kind of gave me a, a, a reflection on how this come about. It just really started with the seed of building something, you know, genuine and, 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 and high demand for quality, but honesty and best value, best ingredient, doesn't care how much it costs. And we were buying 180 pounds, you know, tea you know 20 years ago selling and it cost more than five dollars a pot i mean the ritz Carlton was selling for two i don't know i did the math i mean i mean i could have probably you know i don't know it was more than marijuana 180 pounds but that was a lot of money you know and 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 i just just barely make my cost at five dollars a pot but but no one i had never seen it in chinatown roy fang had introduced me to this tea and we were doing kung fu tea and, and we just like let's just do it. Like it was just it was just it doesn't matter what the business says because it's so good. Just do it, you know. As long as it's legal, you know. I mean, it was just like we would just sell Chinese tea, and here it is, the little hole on the place, and it's five dollars a pot. People were like going crazy, and and most people don't have problem. Usually, people complain it's just Asian people that say I can get this in Chinatown, or or someone would Asian one person Asian, the other person's white, and the the Asian person would come in and would complain it's like we get everything free tea in Chinatown well, you're trying to rob us and 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 at first you fight them a little bit but once they had the tea and they I remember these two two women and they both they're not Asian and both white and one of them had lived in Japan and and she was just on the wrong side of the bed getting up and she was just pissed off that I was drinking her apartment told her like calm down go ahead and just order tea and they go out there and say hey you know you don't have to pay for this. You know, I'll take it back, but it's, I'm not going to give you it for free. It's really good. And they, she ended up liking it. And the next time she comes down, she ordered two different pots. And she teased me every time. say, hey, Charles, we're ordering two pots of tea today. And because they can't agree what kind of tea they like. And they loved it. And we become friends, and, you know. And, and it was just kind of that kind of thing. Like, we didn't really care, you know, what people say. You know, but it was just, this is got to serve this stuff. It's so good. It's just so good. I mean, I, I kind of love how people keep on telling you you've modernized Vietnamese food, but all you've really done is, you know, shown them the classics. Yeah, I don't believe in modernizing. I mean, I, I, I'm grateful getting all these awards and getting recognition from James Beer and all that. And for me, it's just really, it's always about tomorrow. How can, can I could... How can I make my life exciting, doing more cool stuff and getting better food? I'm very specific. I think I was a lot more nervous in the early years, you know. And the question is, is this too white? Is this too Vietnamese? Is this, is this 
you know. And, and in the beginning, I compromised. You know, I made boneless chicken, and, and years later, this guy talking this amazing curry he had. It was probably one of the worst curry I ever made. You know, the boneless white meat curry that is not the right. You know, but but I think back then you you're insecure. You have to do what you got to do to survive. And but but fortunately, I was realized early enough. I was like, screw this. I'm not going to do some that I'm not proud of, and I started serving chicken with bone. And we have we do have boneless chicken, you know, caramel chicken, clay pot, and sells a lot. But but and we always pushed the envelope in the beginning. And, and to my surprise, they 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 just you know all these big heads. I mean, the daikon rice cake. It's probably the most ugliest thing you've ever seen. The big brown square, and it's just not appetizing at all. It looks like concrete patty, you know. So. And I put it out there. I didn't think people would love it. I mean, I can't take that off the menu now. I mean, people will kill me if I take it off the menu. And um, we tweaked it a little bit, made it vegetarian, just take leave the bacon out. And um, and and I think um, what I'm most proud of is the fact that I'm kind of stuck to this method and this belief. And I wish more people think about it. It's a belief about culture and story and food. And at the craft, so I don't believe in this artistry bull crap. You know, I think it should just be you should study the craft, do it well, bring a little bit of history, educate people, then everything else is fine. You know, your job is to figure out how to do all this, and and you have to get creative to replicating and perfecting that craft. You know, so um, and 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 yes, there is personal flavor touches and biases and so on but but I still have a fundamental duty to bring a piece of Vietnam a piece of story uh, even our cocktail you know uh, it, it's you know to, to really understand you know how how is an old-fashioned is made and and there's like 10 or 15 way to make an old-fashioned to put in part of the you know, if it's in 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 England and and which part of it, or a Singapore sling, or or that, that Mai Tai did it invent in 1954. So we created that. Our guy, you know, Eric and 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 uh, Atkin and our bar manager at the time with that, um, uh, believe in it. So, and we're replicating it, and it's just a sure wind fire because these are classic recipe. If you just make them, can you read that for me? Uh, um, is it called Hop Ang Hop Noi Hop Goi Hop Noi? So loosely translated, I was reading some Vietnamese proverbs, but loosely translated, that kind of means learning how to eat, how to speak, how to how to open, how to close. It's it's kind of how everything actually needs to be learned, even from the simplest thing, from eating politely, even. Um, and I feel like that's such a foundation of you as a person in the Slanted Doors restaurants. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break and come right back and talk about how Charles Fenn does not compromise. <laughs> You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. 
All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. Welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Your host, Michael Harland, again. Uh, Turkel, here again with Charles Fan of The Slanted Door in San Francisco. And aside from celebrating two decades of wonderful Vietnamese cuisine in the Bay Area, we are also celebrating the release of this amazing cookbook, The Slanted Door, Modern Vietnamese Food. Your first book was more about home cooking. How does this book differ? And how excited are you to share these recipes? Well, <laughs> I, I got together with my agent and finally agreed to do a book, and I just thought that it's just so pretentious to write about yourself. And so I say, we're not doing a slander or cookbook. Let's just, if you're going to do something, do something good. Show people how to cook. And, and I, I just think a lot of people don't understand these basic Vietnamese cooking principles, like stir-fry or grilling. What is that? So, X-A-O, how do you pronounce that? Is that Al? Uh, sao. 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 Sao is uh, stir-fried. Um, so I, uh, so the first book was, the premise was like, okay, folks, this is the principle of stir-fry. This is how you set up your grill. You don't need to buy fancy gas grills. Like, in fact, they're the worst. You know, you, you, you set up your charcoal to the side of your Weber, not in the middle of the circle. Uh, so you can create this hill, so you're going to have hot to high to low. And in that process, signing the deal, 10 Speed say, no, no, you got to write the slam to a book. And, and they convinced me and beat me over the head uh, with, with a check. And um, then I said, all right, let's do it. And, and, and it actually, once I got into it, it, it really helped us. And there were a lot of things I did not know what was happening when, like, between Eric and Thad, our bar, t- our bar director, and all this thing was happening behind the scene, you know, because everybody was running at all different direction, and 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 also part of the goal of the book was to tell people some of our story and, and our struggle of, of going from place to place, and and and. And hopefully inspire them. Hey, you know if this guy could do it. If this guy moved this restaurant like twice. Um, the entrepreneurship and and it's been very satisfying. And 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 especially you know having three kids, they get to read it. And um, so obviously the book, um, the recipe, a little bit more you know um, fancy. And we pick these uh, recipes that are sort of top hit in each location. Uh, but part of the book is really <clears throat> to give you kind of behind the scene and how this come about, um, how I lost my lease and get to the ferry building and how I meet my 
you know, best friend now, the architect, and um, it, it was just um, a lot of luck, a lot of, a lot of just, you know, it's amazing um, what we got after 20 years, just incredibly lucky. And, 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 and I think, you know, because we always kind of, um, kind of close our eye and search, you know, this, this place that, because we know is out there, you know, and, and we don't, we don't want to hold back and, and, and just play to whatever the latest theme is, you know, um, well, I mean, let's talk about that unflinching vision and, you know, your first encounter with Lundberg Design. I mean, being able to collaborate that intimately with an architect, like you said before, was kind of unseen in the pan-Asian, you know, yeah, restaurants. Yeah, I, um, just like anything else, you, you don't have any experience. My first restaurant I designed myself and I paid somebody to stamp the drawing and we got the permit. I mean, he was an engineer. <laughs> it wasn't much, and they don't have budget. And, and I was, like, building half the stuff myself. Um, so, obviously, I need professional help. This is a bigger project. And and and, um, and there were a lot of firm was trying to interview us and send us brochure. And people would say, I've been eating your restaurant for a year, and they would tear out one of their portfolio with a giant Buddha and a, and a bamboo lantern, and they say, I do Asian restaurant, and I, I find that's awfully offensive. And, and number one, you're dumb. Number two, you're stereotyping me. If you're telling me you've been eating my restaurant, have you seen a Buddha the whole 10 years that you've eaten there? You, don't, you know I don't like that type of... There's nothing wrong with a Buddha in a Chinese restaurant. It's just that it's a thematic restaurant. And I'm not that kind of guy. And for you to even tear out your portfolio and highlight something that you think that's what I like. Uh, it's just, um, so anyway, a friend introduced me uh, to Ole, and I went in there, and I just, all of a sudden different, he's got this huge shop, and he's making everything. I was like, wow, you know. And But what really kind of got stuck, it was just like, well, I asked him, how would you go about doing my restaurant? He goes, well, you take simple thing, you make it really beautiful, and that's what I do here, and I take simple thing. And obviously, if you want like a thematic restaurant, that's not something we do. And I said, I told him, don't worry about that. And I, and then just the first meeting. In fact, um, I was going to his office on my way to the dump with, you know, completely covered in, in crappy mud and my cowhard jean. And his manager asked me, that, "Do you know we're an architectural firm?" Because I told him to have Ole call me back, and she said he's not here. And I said, "Well, I got a job for him." And he said, do you know we're an architect? I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> they thought I was like uh, some contractor wanted only to build something for him. And, um, and, and we just hit it off right away. And, and, and when he met me, he just literally put his hand around my shoulder and said, I asked him, I wish I would love to work with you if I can afford you. And he said, I don't think, don't think about that. And, and we, you know, we've been have this friendship for 20 years now. And, and, and I think with architect, you really need to... You, hopefully, two of you would make a better project. Then, then you know, obviously, there's things you got to com- uh, you know communicate. And we talk about things like temple and how we're going to do things and what kind of restaurant and even deals like deal we want to sign. Like, is it's better for my? It's almost like a counselor. You know, like we look at the site not just physically, but is it, it is, is this good for the brand? And I mean, Hardwater was really a byproduct of that. And he and I both had no idea we saw the space 
It was cute. It's 1,400 square feet. I want to do a fried chicken shack. He said, okay, I think it's got potential. Let's look at it. And we look at it, and somehow we came up with this bourbon bar. And it was just, like, I would not in a million years be a bourbon expert. I just happened to be drinking bourbon the last 12 years. <laughs> and and, and, and I, I did not even know it. I didn't even know that Eric had made Pappy as a well bourbon. For Slando for eight years, I, I seen that stuff and I wasn't paying attention. And we were getting two barrel from Julian, and 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 we would pour it down the drain. You know, twelve like eighteen bucks a bottle. I think I think Buffalo Trace and stuff like that it was twelve, and we pay a little bit more, and we want quality. So, so there you have it. Like I mean, now the stuff you can't even find it for under nine hundred dollars on the internet if you can find a bottle. So four years ago, when he sold to Buffalo Trace, he cuts me off from my private barrel. But that it just shows you know if you really get your staff and say and don't put these parameter around them and say always about money and maybe I mean, part of the thing is we're very bad at our money and sometimes we, and we thank you for that because and, uh, we know what kind of quality we're getting in, in simple dishes like shaking beef but I mean that's again that you know non compromise that you know th- there was a level of what you wanted in each dish of, of simple things like yeah. you look at. What is it uh, now? Clay pot cooking. I mean, it is a very simple thing. You make what a caramel at the bottom with you know palm sugar and fish sauce. You layer your protein. You know, put whatever other aromatics on top. It is a very smart architecture of a dish. But if you don't have the best ingredients layered there, that thing's going to crumble. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we break those pot all the time, and it costs like twenty five, thirty bucks a pop. Um, and and we have to. But the pot makes the dish better, so we, we do it. Uh, there's just no way around it. And we're like basically the, the, the middle traffic controller, and we've got to provide the best value for the customer. And we also want to provide the best money for our staff, for our vendor, and, and try to manage all that and make everybody happy. And it's always been the restaurateur's job. And, and you got to take care of your people. you got to make sure... And and uh, obviously we have challenges. I mean, we're not paying people like you know big tech company does, but we're trying, and we try to figure out a way to make make do. But at the end of the day, I think something's got to give. Uh, you're not gonna get you're not gonna get everything. So and, and often the product will win. We would just okay, let's just start with that and see what else we can save money. Where else we can cut costs to to make up that and I remember with Eric and he, he wants like $80 case of lime in the winter organic lime 80 bucks and that average lime if anybody buy lime is $16 now and I was just like well and I say fine alright why don't we just use that for garnish we can't make lemonade with with 80 bucks a case of lemon it's just, it's just crazy um, so you know you, you take some um, um you know, decision making, but 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 absolutely, we have to have organic mint going into the drink because you're you're shoving, you're muddling those mint. If it's covered with pesticide, then then you have a pesticide cocktail. <laughs> I mean, think about something as simple as chicken salad. Not only what you've done to elevate it with you know a flavor profile and certain ingredients. I mean, where, where's your chicken coming from? <sighs> Don't start me on the chicken. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, most chicken in this country is grow with this particular breed called Cornish Cross, and, and nobody really—it was designed to grow really fast. 
So even you get the organic one, they don't have the texture I want, you know. And it's the same thing with the Chinese people in Chinatown. They can't deal with this chicken. It's too mushy. It's not enough textures. They buy what's called yellow feather, and essentially they're taking different breed to breed these chicken, either Cornish craw, I mean the Royal Island Red, and so on to make the chicken. But it's taking, instead of six weeks, taking 12 to 16 weeks. So when you're that long, it costs more. So you buy a Chinese chicken, a squawny little two and a half pound bird. I'm paying eleven bucks for it. So I'm paying five and a half dollars a pound for a chicken to go into the chicken noodle soup, and nobody knows it. But if you get a couple strand, I notice it, and I've been saying we've been buying Chinese chicken since day one, and as, even our our food cost is high and we can't get it lower. I, I just don't have the heart to take it off the menu and go to. Foster Farm. <laughs> I, mean, I just can't. No, I mean, I'm glad I got you started because they, there is that kind of internal fight about what I'm doing. You know, is, is it right? Is it moral? Or is it business? Um, and you have to blend that as a restaurant owner and figure out what ideology or, you know, what's best for you. I know in, in Buddhism, there there's kind of like five elements of cooking. Um, how do you break down a dish? How do you bring a dish? And how does that kind of reflect itself in your personal life? Um, uh, most dishes, and now I have chefs that work in the, in the restaurant, it's all driven by ingredients. And if we find a, a better scallop or find a better fish, uh, I was doing some charity in, in Hawaii, and I found these abalone that's just a little different. Then it come back, and it's just really simple because, you know, I cook abalone before. It's classic Chinese braise with, or we, 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 we cut it, we eat it raw, and, and, and the recipe is never a problem. And, and it's just, all right, let's just, it's, it's the cost, you know. Okay, now how am I going to get this bloody abalone from Hawaii? It doesn't make sense. Maybe it doesn't. Um, so, so it's always driven by ingredients. Um, and and we go and we go on the road. We go back to Vietnam and some that get inspired. But sometimes it's just been traveling. I remember stealing uh, carpaccio from Paul Batoli. You know, um, uh, those who don't know, Paul used to be a chef at Olivetto. Um, you know, sort of shaping disciple um, Italian restaurant. And I had his carpaccio and. And it, and it all of a sudden just hit me. He didn't use you know frozen fillet. He used a, this all gra- I mean diamond ranch all grass beef and and he pounded out with a top round. And and we have the same dish in Vietnam. And I just stole his recipe how to what kind of meat to buy how to cut it. And and it's just one of our best dishes. Uh, it's a beef seven way. It's uh, and I literally stole that out of his restaurant and. Because before that, all I eat is just these wafer, tastes like something from a church, you know, wafer, uh, carpaccio, you know. You ever go to church, you get those little things that kind of melt in your mouth. So <laughs> I'm joking, uh, so no. <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah, like, it just, you know, those frozen carpaccio, it just doesn't taste like anything. It's just frozen, it's so thin, it kind of melts in your mouth. There's no flavor and texture. And Paul took this top round and pounded out, and it was so amazing. Well, you know, it fascinates me that, and I am talking smack about Vietnamese food in New York. I, I haven't found anything that even you know holds a candle to what you do in San Francisco, be it the quality of you know produce or the quality of you as a restaurant tour. Um, I'm just so happy that we get to steal you away a little bit because there's a pop up happening of Charles Fan food here in Brooklyn and 
mid-February. What, what are you going to bring to us? Uh, really exciting. I, I want to do um, a pho pop-up. I'm going to bring some cocktail, a couple appetizer. Uh, there will be some little bit more interesting um, um, bowl of pho. Um, and we're still finalizing the menu. And um, it will be really fun. I mean, I, I love this city. Um, I always want a restaurant here. Maybe someday we'll have one here. And uh, uh, there's something about the city just just make you feel really alive and exciting. Um, and um, so, and so um, Andrew at um, at the Wild Hotel is just hosting us, and it's just really fun. It'll be our first yeah. pop up ever. I'm extremely excited. And but my only question is, are you going to serve it for breakfast? Because I know you're a big fa for breakfast guy at your restaurants. Uh yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go have a drink with him after this, and and maybe we'll we'll have something for the breakfast. And and, and um, yeah, it's it's um, put it this way: after 20 years, the whole kitchen, uh, only thing they eat repeatedly three times a week is the fa. Like they don't eat anything else. Like literally, I would still go in my restaurant if I'm there once a week. I would have a bowl of soup. And it's just simple and nourishing, and it's just something about it that you'll never get sick of it. We don't, like, none of us eat the shaking beef, but we'll have the pho or the chicken. Well, I feel about you the same way you feel about pho. So yeah. thank you for being here. And if you're ever in San Francisco, please stop at the slanted door and see Charles and get ready for this wonderful pop-up happening in New York in mid-February. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>